2023, Palestinians commemorated the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, the catastrophe. That moment in 1948 when their world changed irrevocably. The Declaration of Independence by Israel cemented a path of conflict between Jews and Palestinians that, if anything, seems more intractable and bitter today than it did back then. I'm Charlotte Leslie, and I'm the director of CMEC, the Conservative Middle East Council. This year, prospects of peace seem to recede even further. We have seen the far-right and nationalist coalition Israeli government, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, announce the building of thousands more homes in settlements declared illegal by international law. We've seen attacks by Jewish settlers on Palestinian towns, and in early July, a raid by the Israeli military on the Palestinian refugee camp at Janine in the West Bank. We have also seen attacks on Israelis by Palestinian militants as tensions rise yet further. But not everyone is giving up hope. Still waving the flag for a lasting peace under a two-state solution is a forum chaired by a former Israeli ambassador that includes both Arabs and Jews, the Policy Working Group, or PWG. Our guests today are both prominent political figures who've been working for decades for peace. First, I'd like to welcome PWG's communications director, Susie Becker. Susie formerly worked for comms in the US Embassy, was a leading member of the Moretz Party. She is now editor of the Palestine Israel Journal and involved in setting up a new Jewish Arab party called All Its Citizens. Hi, Susie, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. And partnering with PWG is writer, political journalist and ex-minister in the Palestinian Authority, Ashraf Ajrami. Hi and welcome, Ashraf. It's a pleasure to have you both with us today. Hi, and thank you for having me here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you both here today. Susie, if I can come to you first, can you describe the origins of the PWG and the work that it carries out? Sure. So years ago, for those who remember the Oslo Accords and that time of hope for peace, Ron Pundak, who was one of the architects of the Oslo Accords, helped establish what was called the Peace NGOs Forum, which was an umbrella organization of the various NGOs in Israel working for peace. And a parallel organization was created on the Palestinian side. So there was a Palestinian Peace NGO Forum and an Israeli one, and they were uh, collaborative. And then, as we all know, the peace process fell apart. And with that, the Palestinian Peace NGO Forum stopped working with the Israeli side. And eventually, I, I don't think it will exist anymore. Um, on the Israeli side, the forum continued, even after Ron unfortunately died an untimely death, but other peace activists took over. And the forum has grown. But under this vision of growing the forum and making it more inclusive, what happens, of course, when you expand any uh, organization, any movement, is that you tend to move toward the lowest common denominator. And so the original group, the policy working group, was actually the political committee of the Peace NGO Forum. After Ron's death and the expansion of the Peace NGO Forum, 
we realized that this committee consisted of people whose views had become a little beyond the mainstream Zionist left. And so after much discussion, we broke away from the Peace NGO Forum and founded the Policy Working Group. Now the Policy Working Group, the, the reason that we did it, and this has actually been extremely effective, is that we're a small group or approximately 30 people, all a voluntary team. There's no money involved. We are not a registered NGO. We don't do any fundraising. And so we don't owe anybody anything. And we're very free in the statements that we release and the positions that we take. We just need to achieve agreement within this small group of 30 people who are, many of them actually wear multiple hats. In fact, I think all of us do. There are senior academics, there are former members of the foreign ministry, former ambassadors. There are people who actually are currently on the leadership of various Israeli human rights organizations who kind of keep a low profile within the PWG, but they're still very active within the group. And so that's who we are. And our primary goal is, of course, the achievement of peace based on the two states paradigm. We see all the problems with two states. We're aware of the challenges posed by this ever expanding settlement enterprise, but we still see it as of all the various options that are on the table, we still see it as the best one. We don't rule out the possibility of some kind of federation or confederation in the future, but we believe that as, as a first step, both peoples, the Jewish people and Palestinians, need to realize self-determination in their own land. Ashraf, we talk about the two-state solution. Can you describe exactly what that is for any listeners who may be newer to this issue? and what authority there is for the two-state solution, how the concept came about, and what it looks like in theory and in practice on the ground, particularly for Palestinians. A two-state solution, it means that we have a Palestinian independent state on the 1967 borders beside the Israeli state. So we want to have our self-determination as the Jewish people did in this homeland. And we also want to practice our freedom and our independence in this state and to feel, to feel free as all people in the whole world. Unfortunately, we are under occupation for 56 years now and we didn't practice our right of self-determination and didn't feel as free people. Uh, we we uh, didn't live in dignity and were under human conditions. The Palestinian state beside Israel is the only viable solution to put an end for this conflict which lasted for many decades and in this solution the two people practices they practice their right of self-determination and can feel 
they are part of this homeland and also can live in dignity. Unfortunately, the Palestinian people have no right to practice its freedom and its dignity and its right of self-determination because of the Israeli occupation. We want to get rid of this occupation. And also, there are many things related to the two-state solution. First of all, there is the Arab Peace Initiative, which provides for Israel recognition from the whole Arab world and the Islamic world. As a part of it, it says that after the Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank and Gaza Strip and the whole occupied territories and establishing a Palestinian independent state and solving the core issues, especially the refugees issue, the Arab countries will recognize Israel and will guarantee Israeli security, which is a very important thing. And I don't think that in the Israeli public, they know about the Arab Peace Initiative and what it guarantees for Israel. And I think also the international community in large, the whole international community adopted the two-state solution and adopted the Palestinian legitimate rights of self-determination and having an independent state. So it is a regional solution, international solution, and it is also a national one by the Palestinian people. And until this moment, there are majorities in the Palestinian public and the Israeli public alike, which support the two-state solution. And because of this, we are insisting to have this solution as soon as possible. But unfortunately, the current situation on the ground makes it very difficult, especially after having this very extremist Israeli government led by Benjamin Netanyahu and his allies, Bingvir and Smotrich, which adopted a very different program to continue the intensive policy of settlements, widening the settlements and bringing hundreds of thousands of settlers in the West Bank to prevent any kind of establishing a Palestinian independent state. And also they want to annex the Palestinian occupied territories to cut the Palestinian hope to have self-determination in this homeland. Ashraf, thank you. I'm Charlotte Leslie, and I'm speaking to Susie Becker of the Policy Working Group on working for peace for Israel and Palestine. And partnering with PWG is writer, political journalist, and ex-minister in the Palestinian Authority, Ashraf Ajrami. I'm going to talk a little bit and ask you to talk a little bit about where we are at the moment with the the relatively new government and where we're going. Before I do that, can I just ask actually Susie to describe the differences in life experience if you are an Israeli Jew or if you are a Palestinian in the West Bank? Obviously, Gaza is is another story completely again. What differences in, in rights and way of life do you experience? 
Well, I, I mean, my visits to the West Bank have been numbered, as uh, you must be aware. Uh, it's not even legal for Israelis un unless they're settlers. You're, you're not allowed to cross checkpoints without a permit in advance that you have to get from the army. So I'm admitting here in public that I have crossed into the West Bank without a permit now and then for talks, but it's hard for me to speak to the true horrors of the daily life of Palestinians. Ashraf would be much more equipped to do that than I am. But just from my contacts with Palestinians and, and with human rights activists who have been in the West Bank for longer periods of time and my occasional visits to the area, it's clear that the residents basically have almost no rights. Actually, I mean, Ashraf may want to speak more to this. They, they face oppression both from the Israeli occupation and also the leadership of the Palestinian Authority has, because of the instability that it faces, also isn't running exactly the most democratic governance system in the area. And there are concerns about human rights violations on the part of the Palestinian leadership as well. So they're suffering from all angles. Israelis, as I often quote former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, who spoke at the UN during his term as Prime Minister and said, Israelis don't wake up in the morning worrying about the occupation. They're worrying about education, uh, health, the economic issues, social issues. The occupation and the plight of the Palestinians is not on their mind, and that's true, and that's because most Israelis don't see it, aren't learning about it, don't hear many reports about it, and in times of quiet, it doesn't affect their lives in any way. The only time that it affects Israelis is either when there's some kind of operation, we're getting rockets fired either from mostly from the south, sometimes from the north, and now apparently from the West Bank as well, or of course when there are terror attacks. And everybody's talking about the Palestinian issue, but only from the point of view of security. And when Israelis talk about security, they mean Israeli security. They're not looking at the security of the Palestinian children who were woken up in the middle of the night by IDF soldiers coming into their house doing searches for arms or, or people that are on their list of wanted persons. I also have to talk about the media here in terms of what Israelis know and what life is like. One of the reasons that Israelis don't know is that the media, even the mainstream media, over time has adopted the discourse of multiple right-wing governments. So you don't even hear the term West Bank anymore. It's called Judean Samaria on all the newscasts, on all of the uh, current events programs. As I said, when they report about things going on in Palestine, anything related to Palestine, most of the time it has to do with violence and violence beginning from the Palestinian side. We saw during the last operation in Gaza, after Israel assassinated the three Islamic Jihad commanders, that the discourse, the rhetoric on, on Israeli media was all about, it was the same 
it has always been, okay? That glorifying the army, despite what's going on, I'm gonna tie this in for a minute. I know I'm talking a bit in circles, forgive me. I wanna tie this into the judicial coup and the fact I'm sure you're all aware that there are senior army officers, Air Force officers who are protesting against the government, but it doesn't apply to the occupation. During the Gaza operation, the soldiers showed up just like they always have the questions about why is the government sending us, what's its objectives, were not, did not carry over into uh, operations against the Palestinians. And the media, which has been critical of the government in terms of the judicial overhaul, was 100% back in the usual language that it uses during Israeli operations about how brilliant our operation was. We killed three commanders in their beds and there were 10 civilians killed in that operation, among them several children. Israelis who follow social media saw the pictures of the dead children. Israelis who only follow mainstream media heard the usual talk about how the Palestinian terrorists use children as human shields. These were children asleep in their beds. Nobody talked about that here. So the Israeli public, you, you have to start from a point where you want to know what's going on and look on the web, follow activists, read up uh, the releases from the various human rights NGOs, follow Breaking the Silence, follow the B'Tselem reports. You have to follow all of this to really know what's going on. If you're just watching the regular eight o'clock evening news, what you get is a picture that life is good in Israel, or rather that was true until this new government began its judicial coup. And now that is what grabs all the headlines, but without it being tied into the occupation. It's not that there's no protest against the occupation, even within the big protests against the judicial coup, there's a camp, an anti-occupation camp that participates in the protests and talks about tying the judicial coup to Israel's annexation plans, but it's a minority. It's not that it doesn't exist, but it's a minority. Thank you, Susan. And it, I guess it'll be a minority because, Ashraf, there's kind of an information blackout on what life is like as a Palestinian in the West Bank and then again in Gaza. I wanted to hear Susie's perspective as an Israeli on that. But Ashraf, you and, and Palestinians live this. Can you take us inside what it's like to be a Palestinian living in the West Bank? What is life like on a daily basis? What are you scared of? What can you do? What can you not do? What's life like? To live in West Bank, it means that you should pass the Israeli checkpoints every day. To pass from Ramallah, for example, to Nablus, you should pass at least two checkpoints, sometimes three. It depends when the Israelis put soldiers in some uh, checkpoints. It means sometimes to stay for hours because the Israeli soldiers close the checkpoint to search for wanted people or uh, sometimes to make it uh, difficult for people to 
pass freely. To live in West Bank, it means that you should live in a very bad economical situation because Palestinians have no independent economy. We are dependent totally of the, for, of the Israeli side. So the Palestinian economy is lack of having big uh, projects uh, like industrial areas or zones or big agriculture projects because we cannot build anything in Area C. Area C is totally controlled by the uh, Israeli uh, army on the Israeli side. And we are, as Palestinians, prevented to do anything, even to uh, plant uh, trees or anything in, in Area C. So it means that we are in very bad conditions related to the economy. So we cannot pass from West Bank, for example, to Jordan without having the Israeli permit. We pass from the Israeli checkpoints on the, the borders, and if they allow us, we can pass. If they don't allow us, we should return back to West Bank. We can't go to East Jerusalem. Sometimes they allow for people more than 55 years to go to pray in Al-Aqsa Mosque, and sometimes in Ramadan and other uh, occasions, but the young people aren't allowed to go there. We can't go to Gaza Strip. We, we uh, can't feel dignity and freedom because the Israeli invasions are in all areas in West Bank, even in Area A, like Jenin, Nablus, and Ramallah itself. The Palestinian Authority doesn't feel that it is independent anymore. Even it doesn't control Area A, which, as Oslo Accord says, under the uh, civil and security control. We are under occupation in every detail of our life, economical, social, security, moral, moving, everything is reminding us that we are not equal of Jewish Israelis. We are not equal of any people in the whole world. We are less than this. And this makes Palestinians think of how to get rid of occupation. Sometimes people think of peaceful uh, and uh, nonviolent struggle. And sometimes people don't think that it is something that can bring a solution because the Israeli government is not there anymore. And the only language that the Israeli occupation understands is violence. Unfortunately, this is the situation. People don't feel dignity. People don't feel freedom. People don't feel that they are equal and they are humans. We are lacking of any feeling of equality. This is the situation, unfortunately. And if we compare the situation in Gaza Strip to the, to the other in, in West Bank, in Gaza Strip, the situation is more difficult and complicated because of the siege. We have about 50% unemployment in Gaza Strip and 70% of poverty. So that people don't feel 
that they are live in even minimum conditions like other people. And this situation is the most ideal situation for extremist people, uh, engaged people in violence, because people don't live in normal situation to keep thinking of keeping uh, their conditions and their level of life. They just think of how to get rid of this situation and uh, these conditions that unhuman totally and unacceptable in the whole world. Thank you, Ashraf. So resolving this completely untenable situation is actually a real security priority for Israel. Yes, the, the Israeli uh, security priority is uh, above the all. But in Israel, don't understand that there is no security, no stability without solving the problem, without solving the conflict, without ending the occupation. Palestinian people cannot sit just aside to watch and to wait, uh, maybe after decades, until uh, the the Israeli government, any Israeli government, will come and start negotiations. Uh, the life is very important for Palestinians. This is the the problem that in Israel they think of security when there are attacks or the Palestinians do something, but they don't think of security for a long term that they can get security when there is a, peace, a peaceful solution for the two people. Mm-hmm. No one can bring security for Israel by all force in the world, by nuclear weapons, by everything, without solving the whole problem, without ending the occupation. I don't think that the Palestinian people can live with occupation and can bring security or give security for the uh, Israelis or the Israeli state. The security should be mutual, that Palestinians should get security, should get normal uh, conditions, and the Israelis, they have a very high level conditions, and they can get what they want, but by force, they cannot get security. By force, they cannot get stability. By force, they cannot enforce the Palestinian people to stop struggling against the occupation. You have a terrible vicious circle. Susie, you had something to add. I was talking earlier about the difficulty in for an Israeli to really get a grasp to fathom what's going on on a daily basis for the Palestinian people living under occupation. And although I do as a peace activist, I make a point of reading and listening and going, as I said, with Opermans into the West Bank, I still think it would be presumptuous for me to try to explain it. However, I do know certain facts. And a couple of months ago, I was involved with a Israeli-Palestinian woman working on a report for the Zulat Institute. It's a human Israeli think tank, which uh, focusing on equality and human rights run by Zahava Golan. And Zahav asked me to get involved in this project, which was writing up the testimonies of Palestinian women in East Jerusalem on what it means to live 
in East Jerusalem as a Palestinian under occupation. And although, as I said, I know facts about what goes on and I've seen certain things with my own eyes, reading these testimonies gave me a totally new perspective. And I'll give you one example to drive it home. Um, I know about house demolitions. I read the reports about house demolitions. I follow Ira Mim's reports about what's going on in East Jerusalem. But there was a testimony of a Palestinian woman who spoke about what happens after the house has been demolished, how she stood in front of the rubble, surrounded by her children, and she was taken in by a neighbor. And this is a was a Muslim woman who's a practicing Muslim. And so now, as, as we know, conditions for most of the Palestinians in East Jerusalem housing conditions are terrible. There isn't enough space. There are too many people lodged in very uh, small areas. And so this large Palestinian family took in this other family whose house had just been demolished under very tight conditions. And she was describing the issue as an observant Muslim woman of modesty, of preserving her modesty and the modesty of her daughters living under these conditions where they're sleeping, all of them together in the middle of the living room in the home of another family where of course there were males walking around. And, and that was something, although I follow house demolitions and I know Israeli policies and I know about violations of international law and human rights, nothing made me think about this woman who has to find a spot to keep herself covered, to maintain her modesty according to her religious beliefs because her home had been destroyed by an Israeli bulldozer. So that's my message here is that it's really hard for an Israeli to understand the extent of the horrors that Palestinians face every single day in the smallest things. I'm Charlotte Leslie, and I'm speaking to Susie Becker of the Policy Working Group on working for peace for Israel and Palestine. And partnering with PWG is writer, political journalist and ex-minister in the Palestinian Authority, Ashraf Ajrami. We've talked about the horrors, I think isn't too strong a word, and the issues and the problems and the vicious cycle of the current situation or the situation to date. We now have a relatively new Netanyahu government, um, a coalition that includes at least three political parties described as ultra-nationalist and far-right. I'm going to ask Susie, what policy changes specifically are we seeing and have we seen under this government? And what's your assessment of what that does for any prospects of peace and relationships? Well, I'll start from the end. There are no prospects for peace under this government because this government, I can't say it doesn't want peace. It does want peace. Who doesn't want peace? Nobody wants war. It wants peace on its terms. It doesn't want to see a viable, independent, sovereign Palestinian state in East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. 
but it would like the Palestinians to live in peace with Israel annexing the territory, giving them some kind of autonomy in uh, fragmented areas here and there. And in fact, you ask about what Israel has actually done. I want to start with its intentions because the government hasn't done that much yet. But it has been very clear about where it's going. And if you look at the government guidelines, they clearly say that the, all of the land from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River was given by God exclusively to the Jewish people. And so that's where they're heading. And Minister Smotrich actually wrote a plan a couple of years ago, and this is his vision, which is the Palestinians can live under Israeli rule, quietly accepting the fact that they're second-rate citizens, and then life will be fine. Those who aren't willing to accept that can leave. And those who aren't willing to leave or accept it and will resist it will be met by military confrontation and will end up dead. This is the great plan for peace of Minister Bezalo Smotrich. So that's where Israel's going. Now, as far as what it has done, there's been lots of talk recently in, in the international media, they've caught onto this Israeli phrase about salami tactics. If former Israeli governments used to use it in terms of Yasser Arafat when they were trying to undermine Arafat or present him in a bad light, they would say that he appears to be seeking peace, but in fact, he's using salami tactics where with from one slice, piece by piece by piece, little by little, he's actually planning to get rid of the state of Israel. And so now salami tactics are being used when the media talks about the judicial reform that not reform, judicial overhaul or coup, as we call it, that the government's intention is to do it. Their big mistake was coming out with the whole thing at the beginning, and now they realize that they'll be much better off doing it piece by piece, little by little, slicing the salami so that people will swallow the little things without realizing where the final objective is. And that's what Israel has basically been doing since, let's start from 1967. I don't want to deal with the period before then because we're talking now about the two-state solution, which deals with the territories and 67 borders. So since 67, almost every Israeli government, I don't even think I can say almost, it includes the Rabin government, has seen some kind of Israeli annexation of part of the territories occupied in 1967. East Jerusalem was immediately annexed. The Golan Heights, sovereignty was declared over the Golan Heights in the 80s. And the same goals <laughs> have been in place regarding parts of the West Bank. The difference with this government is that it has said, pretty much all of the West Bank is its ultimate goal with, as I said, some of them agreeing to some kind of autonomy. Netanyahu does. I, I wouldn't say that Ben Gvir and Smotrich do. So this government isn't, its goals 
aren't following the same trajectory as previous governments. The settlement enterprise began under labor governments. And the hope now for a change of government doesn't really involve a major shift on the question of the Israel-Palestine conflict. When we look at the polls, the person seen as the great white hope to replace, I'm putting that in quotes, yes, in quote marks, you can't see my fingers, to replace Netanyahu is Benny Gantz. Benny Gantz does not support a two-state solution. He supports a settlement enterprise. He doesn't support annexation of all of the territory, but he definitely does not see two states along the uh, 67 borders with minor uh, territorial adjustments, which have been discussed in all of the various peace initiatives that are on the table. So the bottom line is that even if this government changes, I don't see a government that would improve the prospects for peace in terms of making the difficult decisions and the difficult compromises that need to be made in order to have a viable Palestinian state. We all know that even former President Trump came up with what he called a two-state solution, but the devil's in the details. You have to look at what kind of Palestinian state was he talking about, and it was more of some kind of autonomous entity than a, a true state. So I don't see at the moment any kind of coalition that we could have with the existing parties that would have a majority for doing what needs to be done to achieve peace based on two states. Ashraf, I was going to ask what such a bleak projection means for the Palestinians, their fears, probably not that many hopes, and what the impact is on those who are already activists and those who may not yet be, and Hamas and Hezbollah. Unfortunately, the situation on the ground make all Palestinians think of how to resist the occupation. But the Palestinian leadership tries all the time to make this resistance a nonviolent one and to go by political, uh, diplomatic means, especially to go through the international community organizations like the United Nations Assembly, Security Council, the Council of Human Rights, and recently, ICC. So they want to uh, make people to address the the uh, international uh, institutions and to struggle on the ground in popular and non-violent means. But it doesn't succeed all the time because it is not just the Palestinian legitimate leadership. There are also factions of Palestinians who succeeded to convince many of the young people that there is no means to change the Israel attitude but violence is the only means. Unfortunately, Israel gave us the examples for this model. They withdrew from Sinai after 1973 war in Egypt after the Egyptian army controlled the Suez Channel 
and defeated the Israeli army there. And the Israel also withdrew from south of Lebanon after a very strong resistance from Hezbollah and other Lebanese factions. And they did the same thing in Gaza after a very strong resistance, armed resistance mainly in Gaza Strip against the settlements and the Israeli army. They evacuated Gaza Strip in a very stupid step, one-sided one that maybe brought catastrophic result in Gaza. Unfortunately, these are models of how Israel deals with the occupation. They just withdraw after violence, after strong resistance, after having a very bad situation, be defeated or be not bearing the situation. So this is the model that the Israeli side gave to Palestinians and the extremist factions succeeded to convince people that the only language that the Israelis understand is the violence, the strong language. No diplomatic, no negotiation, no political instruments or methodology can bring Israelis to withdraw from the occupied territory. And because of that, now there is a huge majority within the young people who believe that the only way to get rid of occupation is to use violence. Now, more than 70% of Palestinians in recent polls support the armed struggle against the Israelis. So this is a very bad situation for Palestinians and Israelis alike, especially for Palestinians, because the majority of casualties uh, are in, in our side. Many young people uh, were killed in the recent three years. And this year, for example, about 120 young men or women were killed by the Israelis, and some of them were children. And there are also Israeli citizens. And if it will continue. I think the casualties in the Israeli side will be bigger because people will think of how to harm Israelis more than they can nowadays. Maybe by suicide bombs and other things we experienced in the Second Intifada. This is the situation that unfortunately we cannot change. And now the Israeli government also put oil on the, the fire by its policy, by what Smotrich uh, and Bing Weir said uh, uh, all the time, when they, they want to uh, annex the Palestinian uh, territories. And they changed the, uh, not just political situation of the Palestinian territories recently by putting Smotrich as civil minister responsible on the settlements and the Palestinian territories, especially Area C. It means that the Israelis want to move from de facto annexation to de jure annexation. It means that it is not under the Israeli army. It is under civil Israeli government, which means that the, the settlements now in the Israeli law, it, it is equal to the Israeli cities and villages and towns in Israel. 
this situation leads Palestinians to think how to get rid of this occupation, especially when the international community deals with the Palestinian situation with double standards. I'm Charlotte Leslie, and I'm speaking to Susie Becker of the Policy Working Group on working for peace for Israel and Palestine. And partnering with PWG is writer, political journalist, and ex-minister in the Palestinian Authority, Ashraf Ajrami. We have mentioned settlements that are increasing that are illegal under international rule of law. And we have touched on the international community. What should the international community be doing in the face of repeated breaches of international rule of law, which are starting and there are efforts to make it become, as you say, the norm and within Israeli law? What should the international community be doing? I think the international community should be the case of Russia as a model, how to deal with the Israeli occupation, because they accused Russia of occupying Ukraine or territories of Ukraine, violating the international law of violating human rights. The same thing Israel is doing now for 50 six years and nothing was done and there are many security councils you know we are the only case that got a huge number hundreds of resolutions in the general assembly and security council against the occupation calling israel for withdrawal from the occupied territories for uh, respecting uh, the international law and the human rights Every year, we have many resolutions from all these international institutions. But no one of all these hundreds of resolutions was implemented. But in the case of Russia, immediately Putin now is in front of the ICC. He's demanding. They have an order to arrest him. This is just a few months, and the whole international community tried to uh, get Russia out of, of Ukraine. We don't think that they will do or will treat Israel as uh, Russia, but we want one person of this language to be imposed on Israel to be such a, a red line for the Israelis. And I know that the Israeli government understands when it is serious language of the international community. We saw that in Al-Khan al-Ahmar, when the United States of America and Europe said to Israel not to evacuate Al-Khan al-Ahmar, they didn't do that. I think they, they can do it when the, the Israeli government see that there is seriousness of the international community of the uh, United States of America, of the United Kingdom, of the European Union, I think they, they changed their mind. But if they don't see seriousness, just see uh, calling, very smooth calling to respect the human rights or Palestinians' rights, the Israel government will do nothing. They can live with this occupation for decades. They don't pay any price. They even get benefits of the occupation. If we are speaking about Jordanian Valley, 
the Israeli side get about $600 million by year by agriculture in the Jordanian Valley. The same thing they can get from the Dead Sea by all sorts of phosphate and others. And, and they, they can get to the, the Palestinian water and the occupy territory. So it, it is good for Israelis when they don't pay price. I don't want them to pay price by uh, uh, people who can be killed or uh, injured or uh, harmed by Palestinian attacks. I want Israel to pay price by the international community by real pressure. Real pressure, what happens with Russia. This is what we need to see. There is no double standards. And the Palestinian people is equal of the Ukrainians, of other people in the whole world. We don't see us as equal people, unfortunately. And this, lead, this leads Palestinians to think of violence, unfortunately. Susie. I think it should be uncontroversial to most of our listeners to imagine that international rule of law should apply internationally without fear or favor. Otherwise, it's not international and it's not rule and it's not law. And it's not it, it, this. This goes back before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, even in 2014. Why do you think the international community hasn't upheld international rule of law? on an equal basis universally and hasn't held various Israeli governments accountable for their breaches of it. Why is that? It's complex. I think that there are different motivations in different areas, but the primary thing would be interests. I mean, we talk about universal values and the rule of law and the international community every time that Israel does take some new illegal step. We get the same statement about it undermining the, the chances of a two-state solution and not promoting peace and blah, 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 blah. We can recite them ourselves. They've been saying the same thing for over 50 years. But nothing is done basically because of interest, both relations between the two countries, quid pro quo, what they can get from each other. And domestically, there are countries that are concerned about how their constituencies will vote, rather not, not kind of politicians or officials are concerned how their constituents will vote if they come out strongly against Israel. The Palestinian voice oversees their, their leverage is much less than that of Israelis. And we see Germany in particular is a special case because of the history of the Holocaust and its uh, commitment to what they call raison d'etat, its commitment to preserving the security of Israel and the Jewish people. And I think that's wonderful, but just like Ashraf, I think our security lies in achieving two states rather in Israeli annexation of uh, the Palestinian territories. So I think that the German government needs to look at its policy and recognize that criticism of Israeli actions is not anti-Semitism like the Israeli government tries to uh, portray it, but it's actually in Israel's interest. Again, I agree with Ashraf on this point. It's not just for the Palestinians. It's in Israel's interest that the international community should hold it to account for its violations of international law, because we see, as Ashraf said, 
The other option is violence. The United States, Britain, okay, there are defense pacts going on after, you, you were talking about before the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but we can't ignore the fact that the Russian-Ukraine conflict changed the mindset of the West in terms of where they were feeling their confidence in the fact that we're in a post-Cold War era or a post-war era, that the rule of laws now has been accepted by the former East Bloc. And this Russian invasion shook all of that up. And now countries in Europe are thinking about arms and when they think about arming and cyber warfare and intelligence cooperation, Israel is seen as an ally rather than as an enemy. And if the price is that they have to just pay lip service to speaking out against Israeli violations, then that's what they do. Finally, Ashraf, if you had one message a very short message for British policymakers who may be listening to this podcast. In a couple of sentences only, what would it be? We want to see commitment to the international law. We want to see commitment to human rights. We want to see commitment to Western values. Just, not just talking about these values, but they don't want to implement them. If they are keen of uh, this commitment to these values, they should not support the uh, Israeli government in its violation of uh, Palestinian human rights and Palestinian national and legitimate rights. Susie, I'm going to ask you the same question. I would start with the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. And I say that because of this anti-boycott bill the British government is discussing a bill that's called the Anti-Boycott Bill, which would prevent uh, public bodies from boycotting, announcing their own boycotts of other countries. So the British government is looking at passing legislation that would prohibit public bodies in the UK from boycotting other countries. They they would be subject to, and this actually, it also includes universities when we're talking about public bodies. So basically it takes the right of boycott, which is a, a fundamental right in a democratic society. Part of the right of freedom of speech is your right to boycott countries, organizations, companies that take steps that negate the values that you believe in. So here we have, Ashraf was just talking about universal values, and now the British government is looking to deny British citizens the use of this step, which is a democratic, nonviolent step to express criticism of policies being pursued by other governments, by foreign governments. So as I said, do no harm. Don't pass legislation like that. There was a case also, Germany passed an anti-BDS, the parliament did. It hasn't been accepted by the government, but don't do things that, that will make the situation even worse and that will leave the Palestinians more isolated and more desperate because they are being denied the use 
of valid nonviolent measures to oppose the occupation. And as Ashraf said, more and more are turning to violence because they're being left with no choice. Along those same lines, I do believe that there should be a trade ban on products coming from the settlements if the British government and the international community in general is saying that settlement is illegal, the settlements are illegal, the products of the settlements are illegal. Europe passed guidelines that they should be clearly labeled as coming from settlements, but that's not good enough. They should not be allowed into Europe. They should not be allowed into the UK. Another step I would like to see is a restatement of Resolution 2334, the UNSC resolution that declared that the settlements are illegal and called for differentiation between Israel and the occupied territories in the United States at the time did not support the resolution, it abstained. And I would like to see a resolution like that passed now with U.S. support for it. One of the things that the PWG very strongly believes in is recognition of the state of Palestine today putting it on an equal footing with the state of Israel and giving the Palestinian people a diplomatic horizon belief that a political process is the way to achieve liberation and not violence. I'm Charlotte Leslie and I'm speaking to Susie Becker of the Policy Working Group on working for peace for Israel and Palestine. And partnering with PWG is writer, political journalist and ex-minister in the Palestinian Authority, Ashraf Ajrami. Susie, Ashraf, thank you both very, very much for discussing with me such a difficult and bleak topic and very best wishes in, in all of your work in trying to break this vicious circle and in being a friend to both Israel and Palestine. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me.